Let's pray. Almighty Father, we, uh, as we come to your word, we, um, we ask that you would speak to us. Uh, we ask that you'd sharpen our minds, that you'd uh, grant us to um, ask the right questions uh, and listen to what it is that you want to say. Please take uh, misunderstandings that we have and, um, and correct them. And take uh, uh, correct understandings that we have and reinforce them. But above all, grant us to see you more clearly so that we can entrust ourselves to you and, and know all the joy that comes from that. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Friends, you can be seated. Uh, please keep page 10, the reading from Matthew, in front of you. Um, one of the uh, questions that's, that's, I suppose, a pretty obvious question to ask, but one that perhaps doesn't get asked that, that often, is the question, um, what is your understanding of human flourishing? What's the good life? Uh, what is uh, life supposed to look like, and, and, and what's the path to get there? Now, if you're a Jesus follower, that's an important, a really important question to ask is not just what do I think about this, but obviously what does Jesus think about this? Um, what is Jesus' path to life? And how does he lead me there? And that's an important question, uh, definitely, if you're a Jesus follower. However, it's also important if you're investigating Jesus, if you're kind of trying to suss this out, because until you have a clear idea, a relatively clear idea, on Jesus' path to life, human flourishing, that vision that he has, until you're clear on that, you won't really know um, if it's a ship you want to sail on. Now, why am I saying this? I'm saying this because uh, today and next week, we are finishing, at long last, the Sermon on the Mount. It's taken us almost nine months, something like that. It takes 15 minutes to read, but nine months to preach through. And I kind of want to start all over, but I won't. Um, and, and here, Jesus is, he, he's coming in for, he, this is the end of the sermon, right? And so he's, he's coming in for the decision. He says, listen, here I've presented the vision. Are you in? Let's go. And the way he does that, the way he begins to press for the decision is that he says, listen, there's two paths before you. There's the narrow way, and it's hard, but it leads to life. On the other hand, there's the broad way, and it's easy and wide and spacious, but it leads to death. And there's your option. Now, when I hear the word narrow and narrow path, I don't immediately have positive associations with that. I don't know about you, but immediately I kind of cringe a little bit because it reminds me of being narrow-minded. And I don't want to be narrow-minded. Um, I don't know if that's up for you, but if it is, just think about this for just a moment. Um, Jesus' argument, I hope you see this over the course of the, the next few minutes, Jesus' argument actually doesn't have anything to do with being narrow-minded. This is, what he's doing is this is the normal way to issue a warning and call for a decision. For instance, we do this all the time. Think about the way we talk about the environment, right? Don't we do this? We say, look, there's an environmental crisis, right? If we keep on the path that we're on right now, we, you know, we don't have to change anything. And if we continue on this path, um, the, the Arctic's going to melt and life as we know it is going to be imperiled, right? What that's doing is that's saying there's a broad path that we default to, and if we continue it, it'll lead to bad places. But on the other hand, usually what happens is they say, um, 
don't do that. But on the other hand, if we take decisive action right now on, with respect to the environment or something like that, then we can stave off some of the problems and life can flourish. It'll be hard, but we can do it. What, that's the normal way of saying there's a broad path, but it leads to destruction. Be wary of, about that. And on the other hand, there's a narrow path. It's difficult, but worth it. It's not being narrow-minded. It's warning and calling us to a decision. Now, that's what Jesus is doing here. And he says, there's the broad path, there's the narrow path, and we, to, right now, need to explore both of them. All right? Sound good? Just nod your head and say, yes, Jim. Yeah, well, there's three. That's fine. The narrow path. Now, in our passage today, Jesus doesn't talk about the narrow path. He mentions it, but he doesn't really describe it. The reason for that is that he spent the whole Sermon on the Mount describing the narrow path. And um, like I said, uh, the Sermon on the Mount takes about 15 minutes to read. You should read it later today. Um, it, it, however, takes a long time to preach because there's a lot packed into it. However, let me try, and you can tell me later if you think I've done a good job, let me try to encapsulate it. This is probably foolish of me, but here we go. I'm going to encapsulate the Sermon on the Mount. Here's my best shot. Here's Jesus' vision of life and the narrow path. He says this, when you know God as your father, it will transform your thoughts, your words, and your actions comprehensively because you will be motivated in every area of your life by that relationship of love with your father. I think, I would argue, that that's the center of the Sermon on the Mount. Let me unpack it a little bit. If later on today you read out uh, through the Sermon on the Mount, the thing that will uh, stand out to you is not what I just said. The thing that will stand out to you probably is Jesus' extremely demanding commands. He's got these big commands. He says, you've heard of adultery and that you're not supposed to do it, but I say even lust is a problem. You've heard don't murder, but even anger is murder in seed form. He's got all these big commands. And those are the things that kind of punch us in the face. However, underneath those commands, sprinkled throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about God as your father. And he always uses that phrase, your father, your father in heaven. It's sprinkled all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. Now, when Jesus is talking about uh, God as our father, one of the things we've talked about is that that was just not a normal way to talk about God. It was viewed as being too intimate, too relational, uh, too, um, too undignified to, to talk about God as your personal father. But in spite of that, Jesus does it all the time. It's almost the only way he talks about God. And the reason for that is that Jesus' vision for human flourishing grows out of knowing God, not just as a far-off deity, not just as a kind of national father, that Israel might have an idea of God being the father of the whole nation, but not father of the individual. But Jesus goes way beyond that, and he says, your view of God is not just to be as a distant lawgiver, but as a father who loves you and whom you love. And according to Jesus, that's the linchpin. Everything else grows out of that. That's the beating heart of the Sermon on the Mount on all of the commands. Because According to Jesus, when God is your father and when you're in that bond of love with God as your father, that relationship just impacts every area of your life. You, you, you know that 
all of our relationships in life, they all have a kind of a, like a sphere of influence. And the uh, closer, the more intimate you are with someone, the more that relationship impacts each area of your life. For instance, um, uh, imagine a college professor that you didn't know very well. Um, you weren't very close to your college professor. Now that relationship had a very small sphere of influence, right? You knew that person, you listened to that person uh, speak, you took the test, and then you've never talked to them again, right? Particularly if they didn't give you a good grade. But when you have closer relationships, for instance, with your family, for good or ill, the closer you are with someone, the more areas of your life get impacted by that relationship. So if you're, if you're married or if you have kids or if you have whatever it is, th those areas, those kinds of relationships impact a great deal of your life. Well, the same principle applies here. According to Jesus, as you come into a relationship with God as your father, it is so close and so intimate that it just impacts everything. And that explains why Jesus his commands just go all over the place in our lives. He talks about, he has commands with respect to your private life, how you act when you're alone. He talks about uh, your thought life. I mean, what gets more invasive than that? But he talks about your thought life. He talks about how you use your money. He talks about how you relate to people whom you have good reason to hate. Now, how in the world could Jesus have commands that impact all of those different areas? Well. He can do that because underneath it all, there's this super close relationship with God as your father, and that love just uh, uh, motivates you to desire and have the ambition to return that love to the father in all of these different spheres of life. Now, that in, there's more to the narrow path than that, but that's kind of, that's the heart of it. Now keep that in mind, and let's spend most of our time on the broad path, the easy path, the path that leads to destruction, because that's what our reading is about. Now before we look at it, though, I want to ask you a question. Think with me here. If you thought about Jesus saying, all right, there's a narrow path that's difficult but that leads to life, but then on the other hand, there's a broad path that's easy and leads to destruction, what do you expect him to say when he describes the broad path? I would expect him to say something like this. The broad path that leads to destruction is when you say, I don't believe in God and I'm going to live like hell. Because I want to. I want you to see that that is not how Jesus describes the broad path. He describes the broad path as a religious life, but one that does not know God as your father. Let me show you. Look at verse 21. Verse 21 is a frightening verse, and it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but rather the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, look at that verse closely. Think with me. These people that Jesus is talking about, people who he says may well not get into the kingdom of heaven, he, these are people who are at least religious enough to say, Lord, Lord, which is like, if addressed to Jesus, that's as bad as pious as you can get. And yet, nevertheless, Jesus responds to them and says, some of those people who talk like that are phony. Why? How can they be phony? 
Well, in the logic of the verse, it's they say, Lord, Lord, but they don't actually do the will of the Father. But hang on, look back at the verse and look more closely. Do you notice that Jesus says, my Father? Now, you can tell me later if you think I'm making too much of this, but I don't think I am. This is the only time in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, my Father. Every other time, he says, your Father. Every other time, he assumes that the people he's talking to share in this relationship with the Father, but not this time. When he's talking about the broad path, he says, my Father. And the implication is that at least there's a risk that these people that he's talking to are religious on the outside, but inwardly, they don't actually know God. They don't really love God. They use God, but they don't really know him. And that explains verse 22. Look at verse 22, the next verse. Jesus says, on that day, many will, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do mighty works in your name? Now, tell me if I'm wrong, but when I read that, I, I kind of go, well, that sounds kind of good, right? What? Well, what Jesus is saying, what's wrong with that? Well, what Jesus is saying is he looks at them, and it's as if he says, you're right. You're right. You have done a lot of powerful things in my name. Yeah, you used my gifts, but you used them for your own glory. You were not in this for relationship. You were in it for power. You wanted my gifts, but you never wanted me, and you never wanted my Father. And therefore, he says, verse 23, then I will declare to them, depart from me. I never, what, knew you. And ultimately, your workers of lawlessness. See, he, there wasn't the underlying relationship. Which means that the broad path that leads to destruction is when we take God's gifts but we reject God himself. Now, this is the exact same thing that's happening in the, in the second paragraph of the reading with the false prophets. So Jesus says, beware of the false prophets. Now, there's a big background with false prophets. You can ask me about this later. Uh, if you look at Jeremiah, what you find out is that the false prophets, that title refers to people who uh, claimed to speak God's message but actually repackaged it so that they were pressing forward their own personal agenda. Okay? So it was a little bit like uh, uh, fake news, right? You, you, you have an agenda, you have a message, and you promote it by posing as a reliable source. That's what they were doing. And so it's obviously wrong because it's deeply deceptive, but according to Jesus, that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is that it is dangerous. Why is it dangerous? Well, look at verse 15. The false prophets, Jesus says, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Ravenous wolves. Wolves that are trying to, they are predators, and they're coming in and they eat unsuspecting sheep. Okay. Let's play this out a little bit. I want you to catch the logic here. What is the broad path? The broad path is when we use God's gifts but hold God himself at arm's length. Relationally, we push him away. 
And when that happens, we're no longer motivated by love for God. What we're motivated for is our own personal agenda, our own selfishness. And that's why we end up, that's why false prophets and anybody on the broad path ends up ultimately dangerous. We're dangerous to other people because we're driven by selfishness. And we use God's gifts for selfish ends. I, I mean, you, isn't this the way it works? Think about your own life. Think about when you have been hurt most by somebody else. Can't you trace it back one way or another to their selfishness? They weren't looking out for you. They weren't thinking about the impact on you. Or, more cuttingly, think about the times when you've hurt others the most. Can't you bring it back to your own selfishness? I was a grouch to my sons yesterday afternoon after the picnic. Why? Because I'm selfish. And I, and I inflict harm when I'm that way. See, the broad path leads to destruction because people on the broad path eat each other alive like ravenous wolves. But all the time they're dressed up like a sheep. We use God and we use other people. And God takes it really seriously, friends. It's, he takes it really seriously. And the reason for that is that you know, Jesus' vision for human flourishing is for us, you know, it's all about knowing God as our Father, and therefore that means that every single gift you have, the gift of life, the gift of speech and mind and body and your career and your relationships, all of those are gifts that God gives us for a purpose, and the purpose is so that through them you can know God better and through them you can serve other people better. But the problem is that we take the gifts... We reject the giver, and then we use those very gifts that are meant to express love for God, and we use them to consume other people around us. And God looks at us and he says, that's not okay, and I will hold you eternally responsible for it. And that's the warning. And it's a problem because, can't you see that all of us are on the broad path? Isn't that, the, the path is broad and easy because it's our default setting. But friends, here's, here, I mean, this is, when you see that the broad path is your default setting, that you, you take God's gifts, and this is true of religious people or irreligious people. It's true of all of us. We take God's gifts, we push God away. When we see that that's where we're at, that's the moment, friends, when we're ready to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. Why? Because when we're standing on the broad path, if we look over and we kind of peek through the bushes, so to speak, if you can, to see the narrow path, what you'll find is that there's only one person on the narrow path. There's only one person who lives out the Sermon on the Mount. The only person that lives out the, lives out the Sermon on the Mount fundamentally, is the one who taught the Sermon on the Mount. And you can look over it and you can see Jesus there. And you can watch him. As you watch his story, you can watch him live out the narrow path. And it's hard because he was motivated by love for his father, but that love was costly, and it drove him to even love his enemies. 
He even loved the false prophets who arranged for him to be put on the cross. And he even loved them while he was on the cross. How do you know that, Jim? Because he was praying for them when he was on the cross. Father, forgive them. The really bad ones, because they don't know what they're doing. And in a wonderful way, friends, God answered that prayer. It's one of the most beautiful prayers that I could ever imagine. God answered that prayer of Jesus while he was on the cross. And he answered it in that moment when he was on the cross. Because Jesus, on the cross, was voluntarily taking the place of all of us who are on the broad path. All of our ravening, wolfish, consuming of each other and pushing away God. He took all of that upon himself. And he rose again with the capacity to give a new gift. Yet another gift. Why would God do that? Why would God offer us another gift? When we have taken the gifts and used them for ill gain, why would God respond to that by saying, let me give you another one and a better one? But he does. And he offers us a better gift, the gift of taking us off of the broad, way, broad path and then setting us on the narrow path, even though we have only ever spurned his father. And I can imagine somebody saying here, oh, Jim, nah, I don't know if I buy it. Well, okay, fair. But even if you don't, for the sake of argument, just imagine. Just imagine that, imagine it's true that there is a God who loves you, and, but you've spurned that love. And in response to spurning his love, he responds to you by becoming human and dying in your place in order that you can be reconciled to him. Wouldn't that be a God worth at least exploring? And then imagine that that God went even further. Not only did he reconcile you and give you amnesty and pardon, but he said, I want to adopt you. I don't want you to call me God anymore. I want you to call me Father. Come into my family. I want you to be an heir of my kingdom. If you experienced living under that unqualified fatherly affection, don't you think that experience would reframe your life? Give you new motivation? Friends, that is Jesus' narrow way. He says, enter by that gate. And I don't know a better path for human flourishing than that. All right. Let me close by just asking a question. Here's the question. This passage asks us to look at the fruit of our lives. Jesus says, by your fruit, you'll know them. By your fruit, you will know false prophets. But the implication is that by our fruit, we'll know which path we're on, so to speak. And so we need to honestly look at our hearts, look at our lives, and ask, how's the fruit? And, and I, I want to say this. If you're here and you're not uh, a Jesus follower... I want to ask you, can you, we're so glad you're here. Would you help us here at Emmanuel as we inspect our fruit? Because I don't think we can read this passage and take it seriously until we here at Emmanuel realize that we might be a false prophet. I might be a false prophet. You should always consider that a possibility. You should look at, the, at my fruit, and you should, we should look at the fruit of our, of our community together. And sometimes people who are just exploring Jesus are better at seeing some of the troubling fruit than we are. So if that's where you're at, please will you join with us. And we'd love to help you and walk with you as you ask hard questions and explore Jesus.
But for the rest of us, if we are Jesus followers, then all the more we need to look at our lives and ask the question, have we begun to segment, segment our lives? Is there a, a, an area over here where we're like, yep, this is the area of my life where Jesus is, you know, relevant. And then there's this other area of, over here where I don't even think about him. And then there's my private thought life, and that's just off limits for everybody but me. Look at the fruit of your life. And here's the thing. When you see the bad stuff, you know what you do? You don't hide it. You don't polish it. You don't try to make the apple look pretty. You bring it squishy and brown, and you bring it to Jesus Christ. You bring it to Jesus Christ, and you bring that as your offering. <laughs> you don't bring your best to Jesus. You bring your worst to Jesus. That's the whole point. You bring him your worst, and in a wonderful exchange, he loves to give you that better gift. And we're coming to communion in just a few minutes, and that's what we get to do. That's the whole point. We come, we bring our worst, we confess our sins, and then into our hands, the Lord gives us his own body and blood, and we receive by faith, and we are united with Christ, and all of his status as the child of God is renewed in us, and we stand before the Father under his unqualified affection. That's the plan, and that's the narrow way. Amen.